Corinthians had a whole, uh, they felt a concern and a remorse over their behavior during this painful visit of Paul. And the people now look forward to seeing Paul to tell them of the changed attitude that they have. Uh, they zealously punish the offenders who scandalously act and have provoked their enemies. But now some of those Corinthians are in danger of being merciful under punishment. And this is where Paul would stay the hand and encourage the people to forgive the offenders who have returned chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And when Titus gave the report, Paul's initial reaction here was to regret that he had caused the Corinthians such pain. But it would only be for his opinion would alter upon reflection. He said, I do not regret it, verses uh, chapter 7 and 8. Um, their infliction of pain, though unavoidable, has proved, in fact, God had inspired their grief and prevented the letter from causing them any permanent injury. See, this letter was intensely personal. It was quite brief, but it left an everlasting effect on the people of Corinth that many of us would have today. Godly sorrow for our sin that leads to godly repentance, that leads to salvation, and not that of a world that hates death is so true. And also accountability that every Christian should have. I really like Paul because of the, his heart for the people he ministered. You can see that in this whole chapter, it just shows the heart of Paul. And then, um, he didn't overlook their sin, as some people would do today. He confronted it in a loving way, in which uh, it led the people to truly repent, to truly have godly sorrow. And everyone should have a Paul or somebody in their life uh, just to have that accountability group um, to confront sin in a biblical way. And that being especially in the family of Christ, because it starts with us to make the example, because we're called uh, to be set apart, to be holy as God is holy. Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, it says, But if he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And this is a call to be holy, and it cannot be set for today's time and day. And that's what I want to talk about difference between genuine godly sorrow that leads to repentance, it says the godly sorrow produces repentance through salvation, salvation, not to be regretted. And that sorrow of the world which produces death. And talk about that of the world which produces death. So it is the first type of mind that we should set to have, and the second that we need to show off and not show the world that we do not have that and have it present. So what is this godly sorrow that leads to repentance? Well, I think the best to look at in Scripture is David, because he shows what godly sorrow is. And you all probably know between David and Bathsheba, over in 2 Samuel chapter 11, the author begins by giving a set of the story. In the spring, at the time when the kings go out to battle, uh, the contrast introduces by the word, but tells us that David the king stayed uh, rather than going out, and was not at battle, uh, but was at Jerusalem. David stayed while his men were at battle. And when he should have been out there, he stayed and he saw Bathsheba at uh, that time. And he committed the act of adultery. And he tried to cover it up. And he even was going as far to have Uriah uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 15, killed. It says, And he wrote in the letter, saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the heart of battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down. Even before this, we see that Uriah was completely loyal to King David and the verses beforehand. But Uriah 
does die, and Bathsheba does become David's wife. But at the end of this, the Lord does say that he is the priest. And then that species that Nathan, the prophet, was sent by God to confront David of the sin he had committed. As Paul was to the Corinthian church, he was the one that held the Corinthian church accountable. Uh, Nathan held David accountable because God sinned. And we can learn not only from David's example, but also Nathan's. And God sent Nathan to confront David about his sin. He did so in what might seem to be an unusual way to confront someone because it requires a lot of thought and effort to make up the word picture that he plays on you. By communicating what could be said directly is, Nathan could have said, David, look, you've committed adultery. You're responsible for what is said, one of earthly repentance. However, we learn from Scripture that's not the case. Um, the story drew David in so that he responded uh, to the unjustice of the rich man who took the poor man's only lamb. When David becomes incised at the man, he took the lamb. Nathan said one of the most gripping statements in Scripture. And so we're going to actually read that in Second Samuel. So I'm going to start. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan came to him and said, There are two men in a certain city, one rich and the other was poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cows, but the poor man had only one little female lamb that he had bought. He raised her and she grew up in his home with his children. She would eat his food and drink from his cup. She rested in his arms and was like a daughter. Now a visitor came to the rich man. The rich man thought it would be a pity to take one of his own sheep to try to prepare a meal for the traveler. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared her for the traveler. David burned with anger against the man. I solemnly swear as the Lord lives, he said to Nathan, the man who did this certainly deserves to die. And this is where he says, he must pay back four times the price of the land because he did this and had no pity. And this is where Nathan says, You are the man, Nathan told David. This is what the Lord of God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and rescued you from Saul. I gave you the master of Saul's house and his wife. I gave you the house of Israel and Judea. And if this weren't enough, I would give you even more. Why did you despise my word by doing what I considered you? You had Uriah the Hittite killed in battle. You took his wife as your wife and used the Ammonites to kill him. So warfare will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This is what the Lord says. I will stir up trouble amongst you within your own household. And before your own eyes, I will take your wife and give them to someone close to you who will go to bed with your wife in the broad daylight. You did this secretly, but I will make this happen in the broad daylight in front of all Israel. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. For since you have showed total contempt to the Lord by this affair, the sin that is born in you must die. And Nathan went home. We see that David did confess and repent, and uh, he trusted in the Lord again of his sin. But sin also has consequences. We can't avoid the consequences of sin, as we see some people say. And not only did he repent of this, it was shown in Psalm 51 as well. Have you ever been in a place as though David, where you, maybe not adultery, but another sin, because they're all the same, you could not be forgiven of, or you thought you couldn't have been? Or maybe, well, this isn't the worst sin out of them all. Well, Psalm 51, verse 1 says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of 
wide out my concept. You stand to make a choice that the entire young love. They can tend to control the pressing. They can change us who we are. And rather than the Christian that we are, they can show us to be a totally different person. And see, David, before apologizing for his sin, calls on God's unconditional love. That love only God has. Remember, David just murdered someone. I mean, murdered. I can't imagine the weight of the shame and the guilt he must have been carrying, but I'm thankful the Bible doesn't cover up the mistakes God's people make, but instead we can read this and be encouraged and learn from it. And in Psalm 51, verse 4, it says, Against you, only you, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found, if any speak in vain, and in judge. See? David realized what every believer is seeking must forgive. That even though he had tragically wronged Bathsheba and wronged the others and Uriah, his ultimate crime was against God and his holy law. When we sin, we sin against God. And when we sin, it is so important to remember that our ultimate mistakes are ultimately against God. I can think of two good reasons for meditating on this idea. And the first would be we don't want to act as if our sin only has to do with other people. It does. But it does affect our relationship with God. Sin is anything that separates us from God. And we need that reconciliation after that, isn't it? And we need to ask for forgiveness. And He provides that if we're God is faithful and just to forgive us. And it is His forgiveness that matters. And sometimes maybe we're not able to move past those things or you know, ask for the forgiveness that matters. We are able to move past those things through the holiness, the sanctification of uh, life. Even when the people uh, sometimes that you sinned against don't accept your apology. And in verse 19 of Psalm 51, it says, Then you shall be pleased with sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings, and a whole burnt offering. Then you shall offer bulls on the altar. Uh, it says, Without genuine repentance, it's useless. However, with a right heart attitude, because God looks at our hearts, Sacrifices were acceptable. And what kind of ritual surrounding the things have we paraded around sometimes? Maybe we just recite a prayer each week asking God to forgive us. Uh, or maybe that we have a habit of just asking God for his forgiveness, but it's becoming mine. Or maybe uh, God cares less about the action and more about the heart, the circumcision of the heart. And we need to make sure that we take the time to truly repent of our wrongdoing our relationship with God would be better for us. See, godly sorrow is coming to the place of action and seeing the sin for what it is. And true repentance, as some of the people would say, which I don't think is the correct way of saying, doing a 360, but you're just turning you know, right back in the same circle, is doing the full 180 and turning away from it and saying, to God. And truly being sorrowful over it, there has to be a total transformation. And then, moving on to the next now rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss or for nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Preserve this very thing that you sorrow in a godly manner. What diligence is to be seen, what clearing of yourself, what indignation, what fear, apprehension, what skill, what vindication, and all things you see yourself in this world. So, our 
first point, we saw a godly sorrow being God-centered rather than self-centered, being truly a heart action rather than just a mere action of going through day-to-day or anything like that. So, the second point is so what? Worldly sorrow that leads to death, it says. See, sorrow born in a worldly way, it says, does not lead to repentance, but has the deadly effect, uh, which introduces resentment or bitterness. And what makes suffering is not the actual experience of it, but the reaction to it. See, the godly way we just talked about had a positive reaction, a spiritual benefit, whereas a worldly negative one can cause harm or sometimes something like that. See, sorrow is not always beneficial. Now, those who are genuinely repent will experience sorrow over their sin, sorrow itself is not repent. There is a kind of sorrow over sin that does not produce a sin and therefore does not lead to salvation. And Paul identifies this kind of sorrow as the sorrow of the world which produces death. And the chief characteristic of worldly sorrow is self-centeredness. Worldly sorrow revolves around the pain being causing to oneself rather than to their offense and the dishonor of them to God. Listen to the words of this unknown author. It is not the sorrow because of the tiny or tenuous of sin as the bell may be in sorrow, but sorrow because of the painful and unwelcome consequence of sin. Self is the central sin. And people who have worldly sorrow are often sometimes defensive about their sin. They try to attempt to justify it or explain it away, whereas godly sorrow causes you to own your mistakes and own your sin. So which sorrow do you see yourself having? The first godly 
second world is. Because the first one is the one that we need to try now to be God's son, to be more like him, to be nearer to him. Uh, I know uh, in uh, the, the experience in God book uh, that Lee had me do, uh, that he gave me, I think, uh, we were doing this in Ray uh, Vernon's book, and uh, Henry Blackaby talked about uh, being God-centered rather than self-centered. second one is, I mean, something that we shouldn't have. We shouldn't be self-centered. We should be rather God-centered, focused on Him, because that's our whole point, is to look towards Him, to point people towards Him rather than to ourselves. We don't need to glorify ourselves or put ourselves on a pedestal. Uh, and just because we sin, we don't need to, we need to have absolutely genuine repentance of that sin, uh, and not just, oh, I got caught in that situation, or this is happening complacent, actually, with it. So to finish, I'll end with something that really stuck out to me that uh, one of my friends said. See, God asks for a circumcision of the heart. Yes, He asks. For a godly belief rather than a worldly one. He asks a sacrificing, pleasing to God is not the fat of lamb, but a broken, contrite spirit. See, repentance without a wealthy God is impossible. So we must love God more today draw near to Him, so we can love Him more. Because if we don't draw near to Him, we can't, it shows that we don't love Him. Because if we don't get in this book, if we don't learn about Him, uh, then what's the point of it? Because if I want to get to know God better and love Him more, I'm going to get in this book and just read more and, you know, get in tune with the Holy Spirit and walk by the Spirit and live by the Spirit. So, let us pray. And then we'll have that for all Heavenly Father, just thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, having me up here today. Uh, may you have been honored today. May your words have been spoken. May we just show that godly 